Good morning. My name is uh, Mike Kazarowski. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor of student ministries here uh, at FAC, and it gives me great honor to be presenting God's Word uh, this morning. Um, just a reminder that it is a James 5 service, and so at any point, if you feel the need to leave and receive prayer from our elders, you are more than welcome to uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Psalm 73. It is our text for the morning, Psalm 73. We uh, are continuing our sinister series, uh, and we are walking through the seven deadly sins, and this week we're going to try and uh, tackle envy, is the one that we're on this week, neutralizing envy. Uh, So what I would like to do is just read Psalm 73 in its entirety first, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches." All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray now as we enter in a time of studying your word, that your spirit would prick our hearts, that we would know you better through the preaching of your word, Father. In your holy name I pray, amen. 
two Christmases ago, I was at, um, my family visited my parents' house, and um, I was experiencing that afternoon lull that you have often on Christmas. You know, you've got the morning, it's the chaos of all your kids opening up all the presents like madmen, and, um, and then in the afternoon, hopefully they're playing with the toys and uh, just leaving you alone. Um, I'm sitting in my recliner um, in a moment, and I'm watching my daughter play with a doll that she had received, and she was so satisfied with her toy, and she was excited about it, and it was just this very serene and peaceful moment. And then that moment ended. The moment ended the moment that Ella heard a noise coming from across the room. And the noise that came from across the room uh, came from this robot toy that my son Jacob was playing with. Now this robot had all the bells and whistles. I mean, this thing had awesome lights that blinked. It had these amazing sound effects. For some reason it had darts. Um, I don't know why. Uh, it just, and for some reason, there, there was a uh, remote that when you pushed a certain button, uh, it danced. So this thing was really cool, and this was awesome. And all of a sudden, my peaceful moment in the recliner turned into uh, a moment of me darting to my children, ripping them off of each other. Uh, all the while, Ella is just screaming, it's not fair, he's not sharing. I hear that a million times a day. He's not sharing. And I'm thinking, what happened? You were so satisfied with your toy. You were so content. What changed? What clicked? Uh, what happened was, is she saw something bigger. She saw something better. Her eyes widened and envy settled into her own little heart. Now, as childish as this may seem, I w- would guess that given the correct circumstances, the proper circumstances, this also happens to us. Except for our toys just get bigger and more expensive. Right? You look at, uh, you look at your neighbor, and you say, boy, if I, only had, if I had the earning potential that he had, or I, if I had the job that he had, then I could afford that car. I could afford that big screen TV with the awesome sound system, and uh, and life would be good if if, if I had that. Um, you know, you look at uh, it might not just be an object; it might be a circumstance. You know, you look at your friends and you, you think they have it so easy. I'm working two jobs just to keep up, all the while they're out having all kinds of fun. Maybe you look at a couple and. Um, you think of their circumstance and you think, you know, I wish I had a relationship like that. I wish my husband treated me the way that hers does. I wish I was cared for like that. I wish my husband was like that. Or perhaps you're saying, um, you know, if I was just as smart as him, I wouldn't have to spend all my time studying just to maintain a B average. You see... Envy settles in naturally. Envy is instinctual. You know you do it, but you might not understand what's going on. And if we can just figure out what it actually is, we may be able to stop it in its tracks. And so I've got two goals for us this morning. The first goal is to figure out what's happening. What's actually happening when we envy? And the second goal of this morning is to uh, find the remedy. What's the cure? So two questions. What's happening? What's the cure? What's happening? What's the cure? As I studied this past week, 
Um, I came across an article online that had, in my opinion, the most clever definition uh, and clear definition of what envy actually is at its root. The, the writer said that envy is the hatred of someone else's borrowed glory. Envy is the hatred of someone else's borrowed glory. Now let me unpack this for you a bit. Um, the, the term glory, it's, it's hard to describe because it might not be an actual physical object, but let me, let's just try and define it. One pastor would define glory as the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. If you were to look in Isaiah 6, Verse 3, uh, you see the prophet Isaiah um, seeing angels, and angels are declaring this. To go, go ahead and take a look at it. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So what they're saying is God is holy, which means to be set apart. He's perfect. He's in a league of his own. He's so beautiful. He's so perfect that, that he's just, he's in this class all of his own. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. I mean, what they're saying essentially is that his glory is his holiness on display. Everything, you know, it's his perfection on display. It's his infinite beauty. It's everything that God is on display here on earth and in the heavens. He is so perfect. He is so holy that he puts this on display. And this is what we would call his glory. And so here's the cool part. You as a human being reflect a uh, tiny portion, a tiny part of that glory. You, all of us, carry borrowed glory from God. Take a look at what Psalm chapter 8 says. Uh, verse 1, the psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You, you, God, you have glory. And then in verses 4 through 5, a little bit further down, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. The psalmist is saying your name is great, it's majestic, your glory is on display, and you have crowned mankind with glory. You know, he asks the question, um, you know, you've given mankind borrowed glory, what's so great about mankind? Hey, why, why are you mindful of him, God? Why, why do you care so much about human beings? What's the big deal? I look around at just even my closest friends and I think there's nothing great about them. There's nothing, there's nothing great about the, the, these humans. What is it about us that you care for us and that you've given us this borrowed glory? Well, the answer comes at the very beginning. Genesis 1, 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You, your life has value because you were created in the image of God. Of all of God's glorious and beautiful of creation, you have a unique relationship with God because you were made in his image. And there's no other part of creation that can claim that. It's unique to mankind that we're made in God's image. And because of this, you carry borrowed glory because you were made in God's image. We possess certain qualities of God's glory. We, we possess beauty. 
We possess intellect. We possess creativity and talent. We possess the ability to love, all because we were made in His image. And as the writer of the article that I mentioned earlier puts it, these glories, when they are put on display, demand some sort of response. Sometimes you worship it, which is actually not a good thing. When you worship it, it turns into an idol. You are elevating the created over the creator. Sometimes when you look at this borrowed glory, you hate it. You hate it. You worship it. You hate it. Sometimes you thank God for it. And sometimes something very peculiar happens. First you worship it, and then you hate it because it's not yours. First you worship it, and then you hate it because it's not yours. And that is envy. It's the hatred of someone else's borrowed glory. It's looking at the manifest beauty that God has blessed someone else with and becoming angry at them with the person because it's not mine, because I wasn't blessed with it. And it even dips deeper in that we don't just display an anger or a hatred for, uh, towards another person, but we also display a hatred and an anger towards God. Because if He's the one doling out the crowns, handing out the borrowed glory, then it's His fault that I'm in the circumstance that I'm in. It's His fault that that person makes more money than me. It's His fault that that person is better than me. It's His fault that uh, my coworker has been given more opportunities to climb the corporate ladder than I have. And the frustrating thing for us, from a human perspective, is that glory isn't equally distributed. In God's economy, in the economy of grace, life isn't fair. Jesus drives this point home in a parable in Matthew um, where he tells about a vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner goes out into the town and he finds workers and he brings the workers to his vineyard and he says, if you work for a full day, I will give you a full day's wages. That seems fair, right? Let's say it's $75, a a day's wages. Uh, I will give you $75 if you come and work for me. And so they go to work. A couple hours go by, the vineyard owner goes out and he finds more workers. And then a couple more hours go by and he finds more workers. And then he gets to the last part of the day. There's only an hour left in the work day. And he goes uh, and finds more workers to work for that last hour. And so at the end of the day comes, they would pay their workers uh, on a daily basis uh, to the, the wages in which they earned. And the people that only worked for an hour uh, got paid first. And would you know it? The vineyard owner paid them $75 a day's wages. And so the people in the back that were working the whole day, they see this and they think, oh man, our payday, this is going to be a big payday for us. If they only worked for an hour and they got a full day's wages, think about what we're going to get. This is, this is going to be awesome, right? And so he goes through the entire line and he gets to the people that have worked the whole day and would you know it, they got paid $75 a day's wages. And then they just cry foul. They say, wait, wait, wait a minute. This isn't fair. Those people only worked an hour and you gave them the same amount of us. What gives? Why, why did you do this? And the owner is just like, well, we agreed to this. I told you I would pay you this. And I wanted to be generous to those others that came after you to work. 
And they're super upset about it, but this is what the vineyard owner says in Matthew 20, verse 15. I love this. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? In the same way, just as God is generous in His grace and gives more grace to others, as this passage, this, this parable tells, He is generous as He bestows His glory. And God is saying, who, who are you to think and to tell me what to do with my own glory? It's my glory. I get to hand it out. Who do you think you are to, to say I can't hand it out the way that I want to hand it out? There will be people that are smarter than you. There will be people who are more talented than you. There will be people who are more beautiful than you. And so this is where the problem lies. The temptation to envy, to hate someone's borrowed glory, will always be there. Because there will always be someone higher in the pecking order than you. And so what's the cure? It can't simply be circumstantial. It's not a change of circumstance because if you achieve one thing or get one thing, you're, there's just going to be something else that you're going to, that, that you're going to want. There's just going to be, there's always going to be somebody else that you can envy. The temptation is always there. I think the cure is very specific and can be found in Psalm 73 that we read earlier. And so I would like to just take the remaining time to walk through this psalm chunk by chunk. You can look at this as a case study, essentially, to neutralizing envy. Um, In my own study, I came across an outline of Psalm 73. I thought it was very helpful. It's not my own. uh, But uh, don't look at these as necessarily points to a sermon, but plot points and a road map that the text is taking us through. Um, it's, it's very helpful, and as we walk through these together, you'll actually see that the passage mirrors itself in a way. And so let's begin. Um, in verses 1 through 3, there is a problem. The, the writer of the psalm, whose name is Asaph, presents a problem. Take a look at it. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's saying, while God is good, my feet almost stumbled, my step had slipped. And it's important to recognize this because we as human beings, being the sinners that we are, are prone to wander, are prone to slip, we're prone to wander to places of deceit. We will believe things that aren't necessarily true. We actually see this with Asaph. He he admits that he grew envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now something really important that I don't want us to miss. Notice that the only thing that he's basing his judgment on is what he saw with his own two eyes. This is dangerous because it can come across distorted. We're not getting the full picture. We have a limited perception based on only what we can see. And this is especially true and challenging, as you saw earlier, in this social media age. For instance, let's say you have a friend with two little ones, and she had one of the roughest days that she could have ever imagined with these two little kids. I mean, these kids were disobedient, 
They were, they, they, they misbehaved at every second of the day. They weren't listening. They were screaming all day. They were being disrespectful to, to, to each other. It was just a terrible day. You know, your friend's just thinking, I, I gotta get through this day because I'm gonna kill these kids if, if they keep doing this, right? And then at the day, at the end of the day, they finally go to sleep. Thank God they finally went to sleep. And she decides she's gonna snap a picture with her phone. And she's going to post it on Facebook. And now, you go on Facebook, and what do you see? You see her two little kids sleeping with a caption that reads, Good night, my little angels. (laughs) And when you see this picture, you've got your two kids that are acting more like demons than they are angels. Because they're running around going crazy. And you got one kid that won't go to bed because she wants a snack. And you got another kid that refuses to put on his pajamas so he's running around the house naked. And you're looking at this picture and you're saying, why can't my kids be like their kids? Why can't my children just go to bed? Please, Lord, put them to sleep so I can rest. We're making an opinion based, a judgment call based on only what we can see. And it's dangerous because we create a false reality and it leads down a path of deception. And this is what happens with Asaph. He begins to describe in verses 4 through 12 how, how they have it so good. Take a look at it. This is what it says. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths mouths against heaven and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. What Asaph is saying is, hey, would you look at these guys? They've got it so easy. They have perfect health. They never experience any kind of pain at all in their life of any kind. They don't have any problems or troubles. They've got other people attending to their very needs. I mean, just look at them. Just look how good they have it. Look at them with their fancy cars and their their fancy family and their fancy clothes and their fancy jobs and their fancy house. And you just you see this downward spiral that Asaph is turning to. When he, when he tells himself how good they've had it. And verse 12 really sums it up nicely. He, he's saying, hey, these people have it easy, and they're always getting more. There's no end to their good fortune. And it's from here that we really see envy take hold of Asaph because there's actually a shift in focus. Did you notice this? And in verses 13 through 15, there's a shift in the prominent pronoun. He, he goes from talking about using the word they to using the word I. Asaph is no longer talking about them, but he shifts his attention to himself, to inward. Take a look, verse 13. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's having himself a little pity party, isn't he? He said, look at them. They've got it so good. Poor me. Look at me. I've got trouble at every turn. I'm not like them. While they have it so easy, my life is going down the tube. He's comparing himself with with them, with their health, with their wealth, with their prosperity, and he's comparing it to, to his lack of prosperity. He's saying they've got it so good and and I've got nothing. And he actually grows resentful. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. Saying, God, I have honored you. I have followed you. And what has it got me? Nothing. I'm sitting here and I'm just wasting my time. Because this is all in vain. This is all for nothing. Well, what good is it to follow God if this is what I'm going to get? And once you've reached this point in envy, when you're looking inward towards yourself, like Asaph, you actually find that this is a severe, self-inflicting sin. Envy is a self-inflicting sin. There are a load of sins that, that hurt others, but envy incapacitates you. You know, the person you're envying doesn't care. Frankly, they probably don't even know, but boy, is your heart brooding. The only victim in envy is you. Scripture gives an illustration of what this looks like. Check out Proverbs 14.30. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy is like our bones rotting. It's the only non-pleasurable deadly sin. The other six at least have some sort of degree of enjoyment at first, but not envy. You know, lust feels good. Gluttony is certainly fun. Even in anger, we get a little pleasure out of the road rage that we experience here and there. But envy, no, that never feels good. And so you may think this is just part of life, and that envy is minor, it's a, it's a small thing, but it eats away at your soul. And it robs you of your joy. And just as you see Asaph falling into this pit of uh, misery and, and despair, we finally see a turning point. We see a turning point in verse 16 and 17. Take a look. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Saying, I want to understand what's going on, uh, but it's a frustrating task. You know, I question God, I ask God, I call out to God, and it just leaves me frustrated over and over and over again. And then, I went into the sanctuary of God. This is his turning point. Then I went into the sanctuary of God where I was able to make true discernment. You see, this transformation of his outlook had a decisive moment, and it happened when he entered into God's presence. The light breaks through as he turns to God himself. And once again, he's not thinking about God. He's not pondering God. He's not questioning God. What is Asaph doing? He's worshiping 
God. And then he was able to discern clearly. It's in his worship of God that he sees a new perspective, God's perspective. And while our perspective is limited by only what we can see, God's is not. God knows all that is. And so Asaph adjusts to a worldview that's not hindered by his own sinfulness, but gives him a perspective of eternity. And it's with this eternal perspective that he sees those he envies uh, for what they really are. And you'll see that Asaph begins the climb back up. Look at verses 18 through 22. He says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when my heart was, uh, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast to you. You see, he moves from poor me to stupid me. Silly me. This is, it's not me on the slippery slope. My feet aren't slipping. It's actually them. They are the ones on the, on the slippery slope, right? They're, they're gonna fall. He, he remembers their destiny. The, the, the destiny of the wicked is of ruin and, and, and terror. And that's nothing to be envied. He's saying, I don't envy that because this is what's going to happen to them. And Jesus echoes this concept in Matthew 20, uh, 16, uh, verse 26. He, he, he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In a sense, what Jesus is saying is, hey, there is nothing on this earth that you are going to experience that's worth envying because none of it is as valuable as your very soul. Your soul is inherently the most valuable thing that you possess because it's the only thing that you'll take into eternity. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, if you believe in Him, if you follow Him, your soul has been redeemed. It's been bought with the price of His blood. So if you're a believer here, if you're sitting here following Jesus, you got to know that you are wasting your time and energy uh, as you envy because you have already acquired the most valuable possession through Christ, a restored soul. And this is what Asaph comes to realize in our passage. And not only does he have a new awareness of, him, uh, of, of those he envies, but he also has a new awareness of, of himself. He refers to himself in verse 22 as brutish and ignorant. He's saying, I was like an animal towards God. He saw that because he wasn't trusting God's uh, judgment, he, well, he was questioning God's treatment um, of his own circumstances, that he was flat out senseless. And this is what happens when we don't trust God and trust ourselves. Instead, we, we become like animals. We start to think like animals. Animals have no real awareness of God. They don't even have an awareness of themselves. They're ignorant, and they're driven by their own primal nature and desire. And when we fall into sin and we don't trust God, uh, when envy rules in our life, we, we are only driven by primal nature and desire. So you see, our sin carries us to a very deep, dark place. And so in realizing his own ignorance in uh, verses 23 through 26, Asaph then moves from, they have it so good, good to, I have it so good. 
having approached God in uh, the sanctuary, Asaph recognizes that God's been with him all along and he's never going to leave his side. Take a look at verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire besides you, my, f- uh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the cure. This is the remedy right here, specifically in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The cure for envy is a change of affection from the created to the creator. You see, envy is a form of idolatry in which we worship something or worship a circumstance greater than we worship God. And D.A. Carson, who's a pastor, a theologian, said, hey, you worshiped your way into idolatry, and you have to worship your way out of it. You worshiped your way into idolatry by worshiping the wrong thing, and now you have to worship your way out of it by worshiping the right thing. You must see the glory of Jesus so profoundly that everything else pales in comparison. Helen Lamell is a hymn writer. She was a hymn writer, and she knew what she was talking about when she wrote, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you look at Jesus... When you look his face, when you see his glory and his grace, anything we could ever envy, any circumstance we could ever want, should grow strangely dim. It no longer holds the allure that it once had because we've got something better. We've got something better that is far better uh, than anything else we could ever attain. The only way to expel an idol in our heart is by gaining an affection for God. Do you worship God? Have you experienced God's glory to the point that nothing else you desire more? Can you sit here and say, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? I'm convinced that the only way to gain an affection for our God is seeing His glory And I think, I know, that his glory is most prominently displayed by his grace. See, we have to be careful when we try to remedy these deadly sins. um, Because our sin is not merely things that we do with our behavior. They are conditions of our heart. Even if we don't act out on these, we carry these things around with us on a daily basis. It's our inclination to sin. These habits, these sins are deeply ingrained into the very fabric of our life. It's our, it's our DNA. And because of this, behavior modification is not the answer. Christianity isn't about putting on a new set of behavior like a change of clothes. It's not a self-help book. It's not a 12-step program. No, Christianity is a transformation from death to life. And that's the gospel of grace. 
It's not God saying, hey, do good, be good enough, and then I will accept you, and then I will receive you. No, he's saying, I have accepted you. I have received you through Jesus, and through him, I will set you upright. I will help you overcome these things. The only way to dismantle sin in our life is to remember that we are justified, not by works, but by grace. And we need to stop managing our sin, and we need to start experiencing freedom in Christ. It's the difference between mowing over our weeds and actually getting down and uprooting them. If we try to change our behavior on our own strength, we'll, we'll never overcome sin. We'll never overcome sin. No, we need to kill sin. And because we are sin, the only way to kill sin is to take up our cross, die to ourselves, and take the new life that Jesus is offering. And this is what Asaph came to realize in verses 27 to 28 as he sums everything up. He, he moves from um, envy to worship. He moves from the problem and he experiences the privilege. And the privilege is one of knowing God who displays glory that fills the earth and gives grace to those who don't deserve it. That's the privilege. Why are we envying when we have an almighty God who cares for us, who's with us, who's walking by our side? It's from that grace that we worship him and turn from anything else that we could possibly envy. John Newton, uh, who is the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, um, was earlier in his life a slave trader. Uh, and he actually became a Christian d- during his time as a captain that uh, was transporting captured uh, Africans to America. And so eventually he would leave the seafaring life and he'd, be, he'd study theology and he would become a, a minister. Uh, but even as a minister, Newton never forgot the horrible, horrible things that he did as a slave trader. Um, at the end of his life, uh, Newton said to a friend, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Behold the glory of Christ as Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we recognize that we are great sinners but you are a greater Savior. Father, while we um, are limited by our own perception, by our own two eyes that, that deceive ourselves, Lord, we see that you are almighty. And so I pray, Father, as we even sing this last worship song, we can behold your glory. We can gain a new affection for you so that we could in turn agree with the psalmist and say, I have nothing here on earth that I desire besides you, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and the ways that you've blessed us. And we pray, Father, that as we go, that we would behold your goodness to us. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.